The last point in last week's message was don't waste your suffering. And in effect, it really was a, a thematic introduction to this section of Scripture because we're, we're coming to the tail end of Peter's address about how Christians should be suffering in light of the fact that they live in a world that the world is going to resist righteous living. In large part because for a Christian to live righteously in the face of all that's going on around them, it just even in your silence looks and feels like judgment to a world that is sinning in response to all the things that are in this world. And so often that is just something they wouldn't know necessarily how to, how to project or how to speak of. But the fact is it does cause great disconnect, if not tension, if not animosity between unbelievers and believers. Now, unfortunately, in our day and age, too often we have seen the divide created somewhat falsely. And what I mean by that is that too often, because of the politi politicalization of evangelical life, that too often we have simply seen it's only a policy difference, but too often we don't see a difference in attitude, in speech, in our rhetoric. We think that just because we are on paper right on a particular policy that we can basically live and express ourselves in that however we want to because the end justifies the means. And yet scripture is filled with articulation that the means matters to God. In fact, you can even be right in your pursuit of the end that if you go about it in the wrong way, that you are assessed and held accountable before God accordingly. Anecdotally, I would say this. I would say most of the men in this room have experienced this. Whether or not you make this larger attachment or not, I don't know. But if you, with your wife in an argument, have ever been right in the wrong way, just think about it for a minute, guys. Anybody that's been married for more than 18 months, <laughs> you have probably at some point been right in the wrong way. And what does that make you? Wrong. I mean, see, guys, you know, it makes you dead wrong. Absolutely. So just keep that in mind. That is one of God's blessed little reminders that means matters to him and his word in relationship dynamics, but also in the way that we interact with our world. And we've allowed ourselves to get lazy. We've allowed ourselves with the anonymity that you can often find on social media, that you can make harsh responses to certain subjects or new topics. You can slander, you can revile, and you think that no one is the worse for it, at least as far as your Christian witness, except God knows the heart. Now, one of the things we have to understand about this, that in our sinning, and even when we sin in an attempt to do the right thing, but in the wrong way, we are wasting time. It's one of the things that, I'll be honest with you, that Satan has used against me many, many times. I didn't even realize that I had such a big issue with this idea of wasted time until you know, really began to, you know, once I became an adult and began to tackle things like anger or lust and those kinds, just to be aware of my potential, my 
potency to sin. That one of the things that even if I would, and I would, I would try to rush, I would try to keep a, what we call a short account of our sins that if I'd sin, I'd confess it and confess to the right people. And basically I grew up in such a, it didn't mean to be a legalistic environment, but I grew up in such an environment that I always wanted to avoid sitting in a revival service and having to make the phone call that the preacher was talking about should be made for somebody 10 years ago that you offended. For anybody that grew up in a culture like that, basically I was living my life to avoid those revival moments. I didn't want to have to remember something terrible. I just wanted to keep a short account of these things. And it's not necessarily the most loving approach to Christianity to just avoid negative feelings. Um, In fact, that's what most people do in religious pursuits that are non-Christian. However, God actually did use it to protect me, but certainly later on his word came alive and the spirit of God came alive and my desire to obey him was less out of wanting to avoid bad feelings like guilt and more wanting to honor and glorify and love him in obedience. And so it's still not perfect. But the thing is, is that what I have noticed over time, and I'm sorry if this seems a little too esoteric, but it does relate to this message, is one thing I've seen is that what Satan does in my life is his accusations, whereas if I would sin, he used to accuse me of not, of maybe I'm not really a Christian because Christians don't think that way. If, if you've ever been a chronic doubter, you know what I'm talking about. But even when that stuff gets settled, Satan is pretty crafty because then what he would do was he would, he would put in there how much time has been wasted. And I remember there would be these times, these seasons even, when I felt like I could not recover the amount of time lost because of sin. Even if it was an evening, there, were, there was somebody I could have shared Christ with, or I could have been praying, or I could have been doing this, but instead I chose to sin. And there was something about that accusation of wasted time. And I think it's because there's this sense of it can never be recovered. And so it's as if, even though I knew technically I was forgiven, I was having a hard time with the real redemptive aspect of this. But then I would begin to see, and this is where the Old Testament comes to play, where reading the whole counsel of God's word is so good for your soul, that you see regularly in the lives of God's people how much time they wasted. How much time? I'm in in Exodus right now, just in my personal study. And just again, as I'm reading, I'm looking at the concept of time through that lens related to how much time did it take for them to grumble about manna and not having something to eat right after the Red Sea. No time at all. How short are our memories? How much time was wasted in the wilderness? 40 years. Whole generations died. Some thousands because of sin. And yet, Scripture is also filled with how God redeems the time that even we as humans have wasted. God is not bound by space or time. Part of what we've been looking at even in our Sunday school study is things about, for instance, God's nature, what we believe about God. He is infinite. He's not bound by space or time. God can redeem wasted time, even time you have wasted in sin. Now, That is a part of what I want for you this morning in the message, but ultimately what I want for you is a trajectory. I want you to have a trajectory that says, you know what? I want to live in such a way that I'm going to trust that what God has for me is what God has for me. 
And in doing so, I'm going to live my life knowing that sometimes the world is just going to absolutely resist me living a faithful life before God. That I'm going to determine that I'm not going to be a jerk about being a Christian. I'm going to determine that if I suffer, it's not going to be because that's pretty much what you deserve for acting that way. If I'm going to suffer, it's going to be because I have quietly and calmly and peaceably lived a faithful Christian life. That I have chosen not to participate in the sinful activities of others and knowing that even in that somewhat silent expression of me living out obediently sometimes can make others feel like I'm being a bigot or make other people sometimes feel like I'm being judgmental. Because sometimes you do, you're in the office or you're somewhere else and say, I'm not going to go do that. Or you have a friend that says, I have a bachelor party or a bachelorette party. And you start to realize there are some things going to be going on that aren't things that I should be participating in. I'll be honest, there, there are times that, that me in high school came to mind more than my adult life when I was going through this text today. Me being a, a freshman playing varsity baseball and, and those guys trying to get me to sin because they found out I was the Christian preacher kid. My dad wasn't a preacher, but they just, they knew I was kind of heading that way. And they would literally try to get me to sin. I can't say that happens a lot or has happened a lot in my adult life. But what I can tell you is if we live faithful Christian lives, Along the way, someone is going to look negatively, speak negatively about you because of what the gospel does in you up against their view of the world. So I want to exhort you yet again, if you are to suffer, understand this, suffer for what matters. Don't waste time suffering for the things that people normally suffer for, like sin. Don't waste the time, don't waste the pain. If there's going to be pain, let the pain be something that in a sense God uses like a canvas that he paints the gospel on that people just have to see it in more brilliant color. You are hurting, you are suffering and they wonder why are you still peaceful? Why are you still hopeful? And guys, please understand this too. You do understand that you can have that witness before other people who share all of your political ideologies, but because you're going about it differently and distinctly as a Christian, they can actually revile you for not being more sinful in how angry you are or how angry you are at the other side or how mean you should be at them because they're here to steal all of your children. You can actually be a witness to those who you may even encamp with because of the manner in which you live your life. It's not just about ideology. That's why this is not just moral behaviorism. This is about fruit of being a believer. So when as a result of what we looked at last week, Peter says in verse 1 of chapter 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing 
what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So again, if you remember, and I'm not going to go back over the difficult parts, but overall, when he was speaking last, when we were looking last week at verses 18 through 22 of chapter 3, it was all about the victory that we have because of the resurrected Christ. And we know that no matter what extent we may suffer, we know that we have victory because Christ. And that certainly affords us a certain response in this world, but even if suffering has its full out impact of even our death, we know that there's the resurrection from the dead for those that are in Christ Jesus, that we will be alive in the spirit. That should give us great confidence and a peaceableness. It doesn't mean we have to like how we go out. But it does mean that we are able. In fact, is very much consistent with the tenor of where he goes in this because he's basically saying in light of that now even though we have the victory in the resurrection consider again that Christ's suffering while he was in the flesh was in a certain way and he's saying you need to have the same approach that Christ did so let's look at it first of all we need to understand in verses one and two that we do share in Christ's sufferings we share in Christ's sufferings he says since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh and then he says arm yourselves with the same way of thinking And actually, this word arm yourselves is exactly what it sounds like to you and me. It is a military term of equipping yourself. Okay, but put, and this is no statement, this is not about Second Amendment or anything like that, but I'm asking you as you consider at least our context, think about how so many Christians consider arming themselves against the enemies of the day. Do we spend more time fighting about our rights to bear physical arms or are we more anxious to, passionate about equipping and encouraging and exhorting one another to arm ourselves with thinking like Christians? Now, I'm not saying they're juxtaposed. I'm not saying you can't do one and the other, but I am saying whichever one causes you to get more riled up, more passionate, whichever one you're more afraid of losing, may be telling as to what your emphasis is about how you think you are to go to war against a culture that hates Christianity. He says, arm yourselves with the way of thinking. Now think about how Christ suffered. Think about how Christ suffered. Even though they spit on him, the word is very clear. He still spoke not a word against them. Now I will hear some people say, well, You know, he did tell the disciples to go out and buy swords. They bought two, and he said, that's enough. Do you think he was really saying that because we're about to take up arms against the Romans? Not at all. If anything, 50% of that weaponry was used by Peter in a sinful way just to prove and to show that God could perform a miracle in the moment, which radically changed Peter's life. Peter no longer had a fleshly mentality of how to respond to those that were opposed to him. 
He saw something different because he also saw in him the duplicity of his own heart when he followed that up with denials, this voracious defender of the faith. And then before a little girl, before a little fire, craters and denies Jesus. Not once, but three times. Arm yourselves, equip yourselves with this way of thinking. Christ suffered in the flesh. We need to accept that suffering is going to be part of what we go through. Over in John chapter 15, it is very clear that this is part of the Christian life. You don't have to turn there, but John 15, 18 through 21, I'll just read it. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So again, it begs the question, if we never face resistance in this world, how much like Christ are we really living? Now look, I'm, again, I'm saying it over and over again. Don't fabricate that. Okay, don't go out and just be mean-spirited and then just, cre- and then just think that because you're being resisted that that means that you're being Christ-like. No, you need to ask yourself, how would Christ respond in this circumstance? If he was reviled or spoken evil of, what did he do? He continued to speak peace. He continued to share the good news. And as he suffers, he says, arm yourselves with this way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And here's what he means. He doesn't mean that because you're going through suffering, you're no longer going to sin. In fact, what's telling is the next verse on what he means by this. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What he means by this is basically, if you are willfully choosing to suffer in the way that Christ did, both for the end, that is the good news that, look, even though it may happen to my flesh, I'm going to preach the good news regardless of what the world may do to me. That even if I suffer in that way, if I'm willing to suffer that way and think that way when it comes to this world, that I'm going to make use of my time to share the gospel, speak peacefully, speak with the fruit of the Spirit coming out of my mouth and off of my face, and I'm going to share in this way. As I do these things, then as you suffer as a result, then you are showing the evidence of having been truly born again. And when he says you've ceased from sin, but then he goes on to say to no longer waste time basically sinning, he's basically saying this, that those who show the evidence through suffering that they are truly born again, they are not bound to sin. Meaning you don't have to sin. You are not held captive by sin. He's not talking about a sinless perfectionism here. He would not be exhorting the church to not sin if they no longer had the capacity to sin. But he is saying that you, that sin has no power over you. You don't have to. The resurrected Christ who spoke to those principalities and said, I have won because I'm risen from the dead in 18 through 22 of chapter 3. He is now saying that victory affords you the opportunity to suffer and suffer well, knowing that you have an eternal life and an eternal home waiting. And in doing so, you can know this. 
that you can live in such a way that is free from having to sin. So when you feel like you're up against something where the world has come up against you and come against your ideologies, come against some principles or policies that you believe are more godly or correct, that when you respond to those, you need to ask yourself, I am tempted to respond in a certain way. You need to stop and ask yourself just long enough to say, how truly would Christ respond in this circumstance? I don't have to respond any other way except the way that Christ responded. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it does mean you're not held or bound to sin in your response, even to something that is completely against the gospel and the church. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't fight and should not fight like the world does. We arm ourselves with a way of thinking, and that way of thinking is like Christ. And he took the hits for righteousness' sake. We share in Christ's sufferings. He said we would suffer if we're going to follow him. And sure enough, it does happen. It is interesting that he says in verse 2, he says that you will live the rest of your life or the rest of the time in the flesh. And so again, remember, Peter is being consistent. When you hear the word flesh in the New Testament, it either is referring to just life in the body in this world, or it's flesh related to sin. Most of the time, Peter actually is leaning more into living life in this world. So when he says then spirit, he's talking about once you die, your spirit then is with in the presence of God the Father, and you'll be alive in the spirit at, you know, at the end, and then eventually he will meet us, meet, and we will gather with him, and we'll have new bodies uh, joined up with our spirits. Most of the time, that's the distinction he's talking about because he's, he's separating sin from flesh itself. So he's basically saying, while you're still here on earth, and yes, you are going through suffering, determine then not to spend or waste your time living according to sinful pursuits, passions, plural. But then he says what? But do so for the will of God, singular. We overcomplicate this thing all the time. Our Christian life, we overcomplicate it all the time. It's really actually very simple. The word of God makes clear what the will of God is. We are to respond in a certain way for a certain reason. And we've tried to unpack that as much as we can through this book as we've gone through it so far. And in doing so, you need to understand because of the resurrected Christ, if you are a Christian, you are able actually to respond to every bit of suffering that Peter says you should respond to that suffering. I got lost in that sentence. But anyway, you should be able to do this, okay? Because the resurrected Christ lives in you. And that's part of the encouragement that he's given us here. But because of this, choose to live your life wisely. There's so many different, is this not what happens with sin, especially I think in the Christian's life, is that we become impatient with God's promises. And so we try to hack the pleasantries or the sufficiency of God's promises. Basically, we want to make heaven on earth because earth is just kind of uncomfortable, but we grow impatient with heaven on earth. And so what do we do? We try to make heaven on earth for ourselves. And sometimes that can be through things that are amoral, 
You know, money, for instance, is amoral. It's not necessarily evil. It's not necessarily um, good. But it is what you do with it. So if you pursue it to create a buffer to keep you from pain, then you are trying to hack heaven on earth. You're trying to give yourself some comfort here. Or you could do it more insidiously sinful ways like lust, pornography, other kinds of things where you're just dismissing, checking out basically from life in the flesh by indulging yourself in your sinful flesh. And what happens? It doesn't last, does it? Well, and then once you're satisfied, you feel guilty, and then you move on, you do it again. And you keep having to piece together plurality of sins to buffer the pain that you're feeling in this world. And he counteracts it with the simplicity of, there's just one will of God. Just one. It's simple, it's hard, but it's very simple. And because the resurrected Christ lives in you, guys, you can do the will of God. You can actually respond to people treating you poorly with kindness. You actually can do it. It actually can lead to someone saying, why isn't this bothering you more? Well, let me tell you why I have the hope that I do. I know it doesn't make sense. Often doesn't make sense to me, but let me tell you about the hope that I have in my relationship with Christ. Be ready to make a defense, as Peter already charges us in chapter 3. There's varied sins because we will be satisfied, we will face guilt, and we'll try to satisfy ourselves again, but there's only one will of God. Pursue the simplicity of that. Sharing Christ's sufferings, knowing that it is deepening the pursuit of the will of God. It is purging all other affections. Verse 3, I think, speaks to this. It goes on a little bit further about the, the waste of time that sin is. It says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I don't need to unpack what each one of those words says or means. Okay, if I was in a men's group, maybe I would if it was just us, if I wanted to go into more detail, or if I was mad at Jan, then I would just say, look, just t tell your kids to ask your mom. I did that actually a few times when I preached through Leviticus. If you get into the middle of Leviticus chapters 15 and 16, for those of you who ever read the Bible all the way through, there's some stuff in there that you're going, just ask your mother. And I'm not even like a children's church guy as far as I'm fine with how we do it, but as far as all the children leaving and having their own experience, I like for families to be together. But we became a children's church church for like two weeks when I preached through Leviticus because I didn't want them to hear what I had to explain, and it was no fun. But... What he's saying here, though, is he's just given this litany of things that they used to do. And essentially what he's saying is enough is enough. Have you not wasted enough time in sin, even when you were without Christ? But I think part of the charge here is what a colossal waste of time sin is as a Christian. Because you're not bound to it. You're not kept by it. Do some of you not have some kind of besetting sin? A sin that just nags, a sin that just doesn't seem to go away? A habit, perhaps an addiction? And it riddles you regularly, almost in a mocking way. You'll never get rid of me. The resurrected Christ says that is a lie. 
That is foe. That's not to make light of it because sometimes to get rid of it, man, Scripture even itself says, I mean, that's when you cut off the hand, you pluck out the eye. I mean, it's not saying do that physically. I don't want a bunch of people showing up next week with eye patches. But I do want to encourage you that we need to be a little more radical in how we go about it. We can do it, but sometimes the method of getting rid of sin has to be pretty radical because we're saying it is the power of Christ, not my power, but the power of Christ. Because what's at stake? The time in the flesh, the life that I live here on earth. That's what's at stake. To redeem the time that I have here, to live faithfully, to suffer well, to suffer rightly. Peter's already said, there's no benefit at all to suffering for sin. So make a determination today that if and when you do suffer, you're going to trust. It's according to the will of God and you're going to suffer for the reasons God says you should. And you're going to trust that it's good for your soul. And it's going to be good for the souls of other people who watch how you go through it. But sin doesn't just waste time. In verse 4, I think he also says it wastes our pain. Verse 4, when he says, with respect to this, okay, to time, and in respect also to these practices, of sinners, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised. He's juxtaposing the Christian from those who are unsaved. He says, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You know, many ways, in fact, I'm, I'm really not on Facebook. I got off um, about 18 months ago. I, I've had to get back on for a couple of reasons to, for family. And a, a, one of my best friends died a, a few weeks back and um, just to get some updates and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, for a long time, there really was for me a redemptive aspect for Facebook because that for me was where so many of my high school friends and I would reconnect. And while we were living back in Fort Worth, Texas, we had the opportunity, or I had the opportunity to reconnect with a lot of those guys. And you know, it's interesting that the decisions that I made as a teenager, they were still remembering. I, that's not propping me up because I, again, I'm telling you, my motivation wasn't always pure. It was, it was literally, I was just scared. But there still was something in there of wanting to do something right for the Lord. But it's just interesting how decades later, some of the guys would still remember, oh, well, Lumpkin wouldn't have done that. Wait, weren't you? No, you weren't there. I don't even have to think. You know, they would, as they were recounting stories, especially our baseball trips, and as we, you know, there's uh, so many terrible stories uh, in the hotels that we would stay in and the different things that would happen. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm still, at, you know, at 50, 51, 52, as we're sitting there talking, clueless as to what they're talking about. And at the same time, they didn't disregard me. There was something about it. In fact, a couple of the guys ended up coming to Christ later on. And I had no idea that they were reflecting on why there was such a difference. I even remember in college, I had a phone call from my best friend and he played baseball at Rice University. And I remember him telling me, I had, in fact, he, he yelled, cursed me out our senior year and told me to stop sharing that any number of adjectives and adverbial phrases that would lead to the gospel. Stop sharing that with me. Don't ever do it again. So I stopped. Two years later, I get a phone call in my apartment and this guy's weeping. He's a catcher, so he's big, he's hefty, he is strong, better ball player than me. He calls me just in tears and just tells me what an impact, and I had no idea there was an impact at all. Again, I'm not propping me up. I'm saying this is the power of suffering, the reviling of others saying, 
why don't you share this with us? Why don't you share in this sin with us? And I wasn't perfect, guys, at all. I mean, if I sinned, it was going to be more privately. But because I was scared of the public. But what the Lord did with that, it really was a reminder of the power of when you don't share in the activities of sin of others, the mark it can make, even when they are right then in the moment saying, what a jerk you are, you're judging them or whatever else, or making fun of you, mocking you, there is something that's nagging at them. Trust it. I wish the youth were with us this morning so I could tell them this, because those decisions really do show up at high school reunions. Don't waste time. I wasn't intending on sharing, sharing that, so I, I'm, usually I like to prepare my illustrations, so I'm, I'm concerned a little bit about how that came across, but I, I don't want it to come across as, as, as propping up. I'm just grateful for what the Lord did, and, and it has been just a reminder regularly through the week of, of some accounts of very specific people who have either come to Christ or at least have, have just kind of respected. Um, yeah. Sin wastes pain. And I tell you, in the moment, it felt, it felt painful. In the moment, it felt really painful. In fact, even some Christians, or at least people that I thought were Christians that were at church with me, would share in their mockery of me because they were actually participating in the things of the world. And that really probably hurt worse than anything because these were supposedly my brothers and sisters in Christ. Guys, sin wastes time, sin wastes your pain. You're going to hurt because of your sin. If you do something sinful, there's probably a consequence that's going to hurt. You break the law, you go to jail. Okay? There's going to be different times that you suffer for different reasons. And guys, look, if anybody is in this room or watching online and you are in that situation where you are hurting because of really poor choices, please understand that doesn't have to be wasted because if it is something that can garner your attention for the God of the universe who is saying, come to me, stop beating your head up against a wall, stop trying to find solace and comfort and joy in a world that cannot offer anything but hurt and pain and hell come to me. That's when your pain as a result of sin is not wasted. How many stories do you hear of redemptive stories of guys who have been in prison who have come to Christ? You look back at the Chuck Colsons of the world, for those of you who followed politics back in the early 70s through, uh, through the 80s, and remember Chuck Colson and him coming to Christ as a result of breaking the law, break, having federal crimes against him, and then stopping his life long enough to realize the God that he was trying to be, only to come face to face with Jesus Christ. And then you know what happened as a result? And that actually was pretty late in life for him. And then prison fellowship gets developed out of his life and his testimony. And who knows how many have come to Christ. God redeems time that's been wasted as a result of sin. So even though I will tell you sin wastes time and sin wastes pain, I will tell you also this according to this text, that grace can redeem that time and that pain. Now I will tell you by far, Christian, it is better for you to have that redemptive work going on in the moment when you have chosen. I'm going to suffer rightly for doing things the right way. I'm not going to speak a reviling word back, whether it's online or in person. I'm going to speak peace and the gospel, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to take the hits if I have to, but I'm going to live honorably both in my means and the end. 
And it's so much better to suffer in those moments because you can know this, that there is no waste of time or hurt when you respond according to scripture to being reviled or being persecuted. No waste at all. You're just going to have to trust it. It's not trusting me. It's trusting what the word says. But if you have failed, if you have failed and you have wasted time and you have wasted pain because of your sin, either sinful actions because you're trying to comfort yourself in pain or because you have responded with evil with evil with your words, reviling for reviling with your slander back, the whataboutisms, well, you say this about me, but what about you? It's the grown up version of I know you are, but what am I? And maybe that's what you've done. Maybe you have done, look, guys, God can forgive that and God can redeem that. You know how it happens? It starts by you going to the people you've offended, even if their point of view and their ideology is still adamantly opposed to yours. If you did it wrongly, if you went back at them and you were slanderous towards them, you go back, humble yourself and ask their forgiveness. You watch and see. You may not in the moment, but I promise in your spirit, the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your life, I promise you that you will sense and know the redemptive work of grace when you start to do the right thing with sinful pain and sinful waste. When we take the Lord's table here in just a minute, that's part of what you need to evaluate in your own heart. Is there anything between me and another brother or sister in Christ where I have spoken ill of them? Because I disagreed with them on some other point. And I'm not saying you have to not take it because you, know, because you need to first go make that phone call. No, coming to the table and being willing to evaluate your life means that you're not wanting to hold on to any sin. You are not lacking repentance or a spirit of repentance. So even though you may not be able to actually recover or actually make amends, so to speak, in this moment, you can in this moment determine that it was sinful, ask God to forgive you, and determine to make it right and joyfully take the table. Because as you participate in that table, you're reminding yourself that when, back in verse one, since Christ suffered like this, have the same mindset, you're gonna suffer as well, but also because he suffered like that, when you don't suffer like Christ and you sin, you can know that because of what he suffered, he died for that sin too. He died for your slanderous words back to a lost person or back to another believer for having a different point of view. Grace redeems it all. He says in verse five, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, real quickly, before you think that him preaching to those who are now dead somehow corresponds with the previous section from last week, 18 through 22, on the Spirit of Christ proclaiming to those who are in prison, it's actually not the same. Because what, he, what the focus is here, if you look at the term, he's talking about being in the flesh and being in the Spirit. This actually is consistent with what we looked at in the previous section because what we talked about was Christ died in the flesh. He actually died as a human. His body died. But immediately his spirit was with the Father. Okay? And then after the resurrection, he had not yet quite had the glorified body, but it was a spiritual body and there was a physicality to it. But he had not yet ascended to the Father to complete that glorification process, so to speak. The point is, he is not saying there's an out of body experience. He's just saying that when you die in the flesh, your body is rotting in the grave. You are spiritually alive to God. 
So simply what he's saying here, guys, is this. He's saying, when you look at verse 5, he says, look, everyone's going to give an account. Everyone is going to give an account. The living and the dead, everyone's going to be judged. And grace says, trusting that Christ suffered on your behalf, died for your sin, and you own that by faith. Jesus, I know that you died, that you took on my sin. I know that you died a death that I deserved. And I also believe that you're risen from the dead. And because of that, then what you know by grace is this is you simply know that the judgment that all are going to face was put on Christ for you on that cross. So then, when you do face the judgment of God, so to speak, you are judged on the basis of what Christ performed. If you are a Christian and chose Christ while living in the flesh in this world. And again, in the flesh meaning body this time, not sin. So in this life, while you're alive, if you heard the gospel, as he says, this is why the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. He's not saying it was preached to them after they died. He's saying, look, people heard the gospel and they are already dead. There's nothing else that can happen. But you know what the hope is? The hope is they will live in the spirit for those who responded to that gospel and accepted the grace of God. Why? Because the judgment that is coming for all was bore for those believers by Christ. But if you're not a believer, you will have to bear the way of that judgment yourself. And that's why he says the hope is, even for those who have died in the flesh, if they responded to the gospel that they heard, they have the joy and the hope of knowing they're going to live in the spirit. But those who choose not to, you will bear the weight of judgment. Every sin and sinner will be judged. You know why? Because ultimately it's because God is holy and God never dies. As long as God is eternal and he always is and always has been and will be. And because God's holy character, there cannot at the end be, a, if you could even put it on a molecular level, there cannot be anything resembling sin or its effects. All of it will be accounted for. Isn't this consistent with what we looked at last week? Even when he goes back to those spirits, those demons, those angels who rebelled, and he tells them while they are in captivity, this is the victory and the victory is over you. There is a judgment going on then for, for, for the human at least, thousand, a couple of thousand years prior. All sin is accounted for. All sinners judged. And he's saying everyone's going to give an account but he says, for this reason, while the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that through, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, and you know what I think that phrase means? I think that phrase means that those who actually were even martyred for their faith. See, here's what happens. People judge Christians. And sometimes in this day and age, if you go read Hebrews 11, many are judged to the point of death. Christ was, isn't this the reference he's talking about? Suffer like Christ did? even to the point of death. People judge us, us in the flesh. They will judge Christians as not being worthy of living because they are not sharing their sinful ideologies. And even today, not necessarily in the West, but in our world, we still see that Christians are martyred for their faith. You know, Fox's Book of Martyrs and even the updated versions will tell you that the 20th century alone outnumbered all of the 19th centuries prior for the number of those who were martyred. Now, that could just be 
you know, increase in population, other factors, not to get into statistics, but the fact is people in every age, in every generation, somewhere in the world are still dying for their faith. And this is being preached in a culture and in a part of the world that was caustic and against the gospel. And look, guys, in America, we cannot legislate holiness. We can have good morals and we can try for that and we can try to have order. But guys, there's no way that a Christianity can actually cover a nation. Because at the end of the day, it's still run and led by people who in large part, many number of them are without God and will not be with God ever. And they will be opposed. Again, even some people in your own party, in your own ideology, with your own policy perspectives. The idea is we have to be ready now to say, I'm going to live rightly now. I'm going to not respond this way now. I'm going to determine that if I do suffer, it's going to be for that reason then. But for the right reasons, I'm going to begin this process now by saying, you know, Lord, I want to follow you. I am sorry for when I do hurt that I run to sinful practices. That's an indicator that you're not going to respond well to suffering one day, guys. When we choose sin to buffer and relieve our hurt from our pain, the gospel is the only way. Trusting Christ is the only way that judgment could be bore by someone other than the person who has sinned. And that gospel is nothing less than the fact that Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and me. He rose from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And for those who by faith trust that Jesus Christ did all that for them, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them and the trajectory of their life forever changes. You won't be perfect, but I promise you, the direction will change. You will have purpose where you never had it before. If you're hurting because of sin, come to Christ today. Christian, I just close by saying, don't go back to old ways. Wasn't there enough time, even if you were just a kid, or let's say even if you came to Christ as a young age like I did at nine, baptized at 10, but did, haven't you sinned enough in your life that you just don't want to continue any practices? And I don't say that again, thinking that we can be perfect. I do say that though, saying that you need to stop believing the lie that you can't conquer certain sins in your life. The risen Christ can and actually already has. So stop believing the lie that you're bound to keep in lust, that you're bound to keep in anger, that you're bound to keep in gluttony or greed or whatever else that is your go-to. You don't have to if you are in Christ. Even though the world may judge you, and you probably are judged more than you even think that you are, in people's minds. Just simply determine that because God in Christ has taken your judgment, you can take that. You can take that. And it just may be that the way that you take it could actually mean that that person who is judging you then realizes there, there is a judgment coming and that there's one who can bear their judgment and that you might be able to give hope of the gospel to them because of how you are responding to their reviling. Man, what a story that would be.